0: Series in Galatians today, uh, which is uh, the sermon series we've been in for a few months now, so if you want to turn there in your Bibles, that'd be great, but this will be on screen here too in a second. Um, I'm going to refrain from summarizing this today because this passage does it nicely itself, uh, but if you haven't been here, I will say that this is a book about Christ. It's a great book of the Bible. I encourage you to go back and read it in full if you haven't or maybe never have, uh, and if you want some like commentary to complement it, all of our sermons are on, online, through, accessible through our website. In our SoundCloud account if you want to have those kind of in your ear to as you're reading. encourage you guys to do that. Um, but, but again, I will say this is a book about Christ. It's about his gospel, the good news of his death and resurrection that we've just been singing about. And contextually and historically, some false teachers who were infiltrating churches in the first century, teaching that Jesus saves you, but then you need to, to stay saved by keeping laws yourself, or you need to keep yourself saved, basically. That was the false teaching. So it was affirming of Jesus' goodness, that he's the door to the faith, but denying that he's the path, denying that he's the final destination. So Jesus is good, he exonerates, he forgives, he cleanses, but now it's up to you to do good, to keep yourself saved. That's that's a false gospel, false teaching that Paul's very animated against. It's easily uh, something that seeps into the church and our hearts. So whole churches and individuals as well. And this is happening in the first century. This is not theory. This is not a hypothetical. Maybe it'll happen sort of in some ways, in some cases throughout history. But this is, this is in the Bible. This is God's words to, to the church, encouraging the church in the gospel, but warning the church from abandoning Christ, or even saying that Christ is just good and not great, or sort of sufficient but not, not wholly sufficient. And so that's what Paul's been teaching against and he will continue to as he wraps up the book today, uh, Galatians 6, 11 to 18, and we'll look at this idea of what counts for the Christian is a new creation. Not the law, not keeping the law or commandments, but what counts now is that God recreates us through his son and that we believe that and we receive that, not just know it intellectually, but receive that into our lives and, and hearts. And so Galatians 6, 11 to 18, as we close the book, and recap this. Uh, note Paul's final words. How animated he is in a good way, with pastoral love, but also some anger that these churches are abandoning Christ. Pastoral love in that, though, and some summary in terms of who these false teachers were, their motive, and their their um, their uh, hypocrisy and their um, just misguidedness, and then a final prayer here as well at the the very end in classic Pauline way. We'll talk about that. Well, let's talk about it here in full to begin or read it in full. Uh, Galatians 6, 11 to 18. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast, except. In the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Another word for the church. Verse 17 From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. All right, let's start with a little bit of commentary here on verse 11. Uh, see with what large letters I'm writing to you uh, with my, my own hand. This, this, if you're just joining us in this series, this is um, kind of one verse in a, in a strand of many where Paul's been showing his, uh, his, his anger, his love, his kind of jealousy for his people in a good way, his jealous love for them like as a father and a pastor. And he's kind of just, he's distraught over them. That he's like, did I just lead you to Jesus? Where are you going? Uh, Why have you abandoned him? And so at the very end here, he writes in large letters. This is kind of like an email or a text in all caps that we get. You know, know, we hear people yelling and we're like, stop yelling. Just write in lowercase letters, what's going on? What's the big deal? Uh, But this is kind of like one of the first of those. And so what we're seeing here, though, is this idea that clarity on what the gospel is and isn't is not a small charitable thing where we just agree to disagree. There are those things in the church, for sure, but it's not here. What the gospel is and what it isn't is not charitable. It's not something we say, oh yeah, I'll just agree to disagree. It's wide, it's loose, it's gray. But rather everything hinges on it, everything. Otherwise he wouldn't grab the letter out of this dictator's or scribe's hand and, and write himself. It's probably someone else who was writing it, but he grabs it and says, look, now I'm writing this part as he's speaking, but now I'm writing this part. In large letters, he wants to just convey his emotion here. The entirety of the biblical storyline hangs on it. Our eternal security, hope over death, hope for eternal life, God's glory and fame and honor in the salvation of sinners like us hinges on it, and the health of local churches, the health of a church just like this, hinges on what the gospel is, our clarity on what it is, and conversely, what it isn't. So that we're not the blind leading the blind, as Jesus talks about. So we might think we know what's right, but we might be totally wrong. And we're leading people right to the gates of hell, uh, unbeknownst to, to us. And so as Jesus says, knowing that he's the truth and knowing what he has to teach us, knowing that he's the instigator of this New Testament, this new covenant, is not charitable it is rather it's it's black and white it's not gray it is is the the essence of the faith and something that we uh, need to be clear on so the the danger then for for us and I'm speaking a lot of this is written this actually is written to Christians and so I've been saying throughout the series if you're not a Christian you're gonna be hearing a lot about what the gospel is throughout this series so it is for you for sure as well but the warning in here is for Christians So if you're a Christian who calls his church home or not, if you profess faith in Jesus, if you consider yourself a Christian, then the danger for us sometimes starts with not using large letters to write with when we talk about the gospel, figuratively speaking. Making it secondary, veiled, or weak. Getting bored with it. And making our theology slightly more man-centered so the focus is taken a little more off of Jesus and put a little more onto us. And that may sound hypothetical to some of you, but it happens all the time. All the time. Whether to individuals or entire churches. That's one of the reasons why we have this book in the Bible. For encouragement, but also for the sake of that warning that I was talking about before. Because Christians are always a lot closer than they think to decentralizing the gospel. And dark angels are always working day and night to see to it. So how are we going to respond? with wartime mentality or passivity, with large letters or small letters in how we operate. And so if you guys don't share this type of zeal for pure doctrine, and we all will not at some point in our life, and so um, just to speak to all of us on this issue for a second, if we don't share this type of zeal that Paul has, if at any juncture in the series you've been like, really Paul? You've wished that for these false teachers? You've this you've had this kind of anger you've called the galatians this you framed it this way and you haven't been able to kind of resonate if if you felt dissonance to it then on one level understand this gospel idea you're not saved by how much zeal you have so it's okay you and i are saved by god having zeal for us god has zeal for you his zealous love that's what we celebrate Christmas, at Christmas time, and especially at Easter. Zealous love, intent, way beyond what you could ever imagine. Whatever you think about when you think about God's love for you, it's way too small. Way too small. So the Bible can inform these things and we can grow in that and come to appreciate it more, but it's always bigger. Like a parent's love for their kids. Like parents, have you ever been able to not like put into words how much you love your kids? And you say it and they're like, yeah. You know, like, oh, but I just want them to know. But they can't. They never will. They'll never understand. They, they, they weren't, like, aware of that first few moments they took breaths and, and you held them in your arms. They don't remember that. None of us remember that. Our, the, the love our parents have for us always supersedes ours for them. It's the, same, it's the same with God. So on one level, if you don't share this zeal that Paul has, just be free. It's okay. Uh, it's okay. You're not saved by how much zeal you have. For, for doctrinal clarity, you're saved by how much zeal God has for you through Christ. That's one. But two, that doesn't mean we shouldn't work hard at aligning our affections with Paul's here. And the best way to do that is to understand what it's the gospel actually is, how beautiful it is, and conversely, what it isn't. And just how wrong these teachers were in these Galatian churches in the first century, how wrong they were to demand that Christians add to to jesus and that's what's going on here these false teachers infiltrating these churches teaching these things uh, and how toxic that was it was a toxic thing for the soul and for the body and for these communities of faith in this galatian region a toxic thing to dilute grace and, and, and to hear this teaching that jesus is good but not ultimate So what I want to do this morning then is just go through this passage pretty quick. There's going to be a lot of review here. So if you haven't been here, it's actually a great sermon to be here for your understanding of Galatians on a teaching level. There'll be some bullet points here. I do have three kind of big things, but a bullet pointy thing, reviewing a lot, but also some new stuff on who these false teachers were, their motive, their hypocrisy, and their ignorance. Those are the three big things. And then closing with a final prayer of of grace. So let's review and recap and just kind of hear the warning, but also the encouragement in in these things. The first is the false teacher's motive. So in verse 12, it says, "...it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and to keep the law, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ." So here we're just seeing two clear reasons. These are two reasons why Christians might seek to abandon Jesus and start to require law-keeping or rule-following or asceticism for other Christians and themselves. Two really clear reasons. One, first, is to make a good showing in the flesh. In other words, to make themselves look good. But the gospel doesn't flatter us. We've been saying, right, and seeing this in this series. The gospel's not flattering to us. The laws are, and law-keeping can be, but the gospel itself doesn't flatter us or sometimes usually make us look good on the outside. It doesn't really do that. In fact, a lot of time as Christians, we will look less spiritual than other religious types because Jesus is enough for us. We really believe he's enough. And so true Christians, like in Jesus' day, Jesus was looked down on as not a very spiritual guy, not really that religious he didn't do all the spiritual things, didn't keep all the rules, like he broke some. He was looked down on for that. It's the same for his followers who are mini Christs, Christians in the world. And so for us, then there's not, there shouldn't be any way, this strong impulse as Christians to look spiritual in other ways, other than just believing the gospel. It actually is enough. So Christians, because of what we believe Jesus did for us on that cross, we don't have this strong impulse, like other religions do, to to look, kind of look the part, in a sense, or look spiritual on the outside. That will happen, of course, sometimes. We don't feel that impulse to need to do it and to require others to do it. Jesus' death on the cross is enough. And we boast in it, as this passage is talking about, not in our flesh. That's the first thing. The second thing here is the false teacher's motive to teaching and requiring law-keeping for Christians is to not be persecuted. They want, they want to be people, they are people-pleasers. They want to get along with people. They don't want people to look down on them or mock them or laugh at them. This is why they're requiring circumcision, but also all kinds of Old Testament law-keeping, commandment-keeping for these Christians. And so in this series, again, if you weren't here, uh, we've been saying this a ton. Uh, but, that, but that is, remember, the, the idea of morality itself or, you know, doing good for the sake of earning kind of pleasure, uh, God's pleasure, God's favor over us, or, or, or saying, you can do this good deed, you guys, you can do this, and it will make God happy and keep you saved. Or religion itself, all of that together is not offensive, it's not offensive to say to each other, "You can go do this. Go volunteer. Be a good person. Contribute to society. Contribute to human flourishing." That's not offensive, and it's not to say that that's never ever a part of Christian messages. We talked about this last week. It can be, and there's a healthy place for that. But that in of itself is not offensive. And Paul's been clear here: the true gospel will always be offensive. If it's not, it's not the gospel. And so the former's not offensive, and it won't elicit persecution, but saying things like we can't do any good before God on our own. And when we centralize Jesus, when we hail him as king of the universe and the earth, and when we say that he had to die a horrific death in order for us to be saved, there's no other way, which highlights our sin, but highlights his love even more. When we talk about those things and centralize that alone that will elicit persecution. It will elicit mocking. It will elicit laughter, like it did for Paul, like it did for Jesus, like it did for early Christians. By other religious people, even other misguided Christians in these churches. This is not, I'm not talking about people outside the church persecuting. I'm talking about people inside the church, Christians, who are misguided. Like these false teachers. These are Jewish Christians. They might be posing. They might be faking it. But in some cases, they're actually Christians that don't understand these things as, that well yet. They're seeing other Christians who, who have a simple faith, Jesus alone, and they're mocking them for it. And they're looking down and condescending them. So, another <clears throat> maxim we've had in this series is just saying the idea that good people persecute gospel people. It's good people, usually, who persecute gospel people because the gospel doesn't care about our goodness but rather God's goodness. That's what it's saying. That's what we see when we look at the cross. If goodness, your goodness could save you, what in the world is Jesus doing on that cross? It's a waste of time. It's, it's impotent. It's unnecessary suffering. And then there's no love in it. But this tells us a lot about the gospel, right? When we think about it this way, if, if it's it, the gospel, were about celebrating our goodness and flattering us, then why did good people persecute Christians in the Bible? Why was it good people that were against Jesus? The bad people loved him. They saw their need and flocked to him. Why was it good religious people? It must have been, see see how this frames the the content, the essence of what his message was? And we don't have to guess at this. We see what the essence was. But also the response of people, good people, tells us a lot about what he was saying and what he was doing. And so as a church, and as individual Christians, we're likely not preaching the gospel right until we have some good moral people mock us now and then. Doesn't mean we go looking for it, hope we don't have it, but the, the reality is we will. It's just not a flattering message. It's the best message, it's super good news because it means you're loved beyond your wildest dreams. You don't have to, you can stop the charade, Jesus bled to wash you from your sins. He didn't ask you after that to pay up your 20% of the deal or something. You know, it's Jesus alone, not Jesus plus you. So we will be mocked for placing Jesus over morality and for not preaching a message to people that flatters people remember, this is what partly what, what got Jesus crucified, and so we'll, we'll see that as well. So, so if and when you guys are tempted to add to Jesus or to think that your deeds keep you saved, ask yourself why. Are you ashamed of the cross? Are you more interested in making Christianity palatable by talking more about our works as believers than about Jesus' bloody death? Are we trying to look good before others to please them? And are we trying to avoid persecution? Those might be the reasons why we don't use large letters to write with with our hand, figuratively, or literally speaking, when we talk about the gospel, we move on from it and talk about volunteerism and social change and just this vague notion of love without any gospel qualification to it. The second piece is the false teacher's hypocrisy, verse 13. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. I love this. Uh, Romans 2:22 uh, and 23 also, same author. Paul writes this to the Roman church this time, but says something kind of similar. He says, you who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Implied answer, yes, at least in your hearts you do when you lust after other people. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. This is the problem with requiring law-keeping and rule-following, requiring them uh, as Christians, kind of Christian to Christian or to anybody really, is that we, as Paul's getting at here in verse 13, we're instantly hypocritical when we do it, instantly. And the problem with morality in general is that at best, it can only address the future but not our pasts and presents. Because whatever bar we hold up, we haven't jumped over it 10,000 times in our life in the past. So who's going to take care of that? You? Can you time travel? It can only address the future. And, and, what, and this is a problem. then The problem of, of sin is that it's a past issue as well. We're born into it. It's not just actions anyway. It's our, it's our kind of inherent nature that we inherit. The problem with just talking and centralizing morality is you... You and I imprison people further. We beat them over the head. We're not gentle with them. We give them unfollowable things. And all along, we take the focus off of the true Savior. And we're hypocritical as well, which is why we need Jesus. And this is, this is why Romans 3, actually a chapter after uh, this in Romans 2. In Romans 3, it's one argument. Paul says in that letter, Jesus is apart from the law. He's apart from the Ten Commandments. He's not an appendage onto it, like the 11th Commandment or something, follow Jesus. He's apart from it. His death was apart from it. So the righteousness, the perfection we have before God is based on what he does. He's not a teacher primarily. He's a savior. I talked about that last week. But that phrase is so important. The law and the prophets in the Old Testament point to Christ. They anticipate him. They prophesy about him. But the essence of the New Testament is different than the old system. It's not about commandments being between you and God anymore. It's only about Jesus being that mediator. There's only one mediator between God and people, the Bible says. The man Christ Jesus. The fact that, and this is heavy biblical theology here for a second, but the fact that he doesn't say law there is significant. The law used to be between sinners and God, and that didn't work out so well for Israel. So God replaced it. He was always intending to. God's al- Jesus is always God's plan A. The law, as Galatians was saying, remember, was making the problem worse so we'd want a new kind of mediator all the more and see our need for it all the more. The requirement now is Jesus alone. There is a requirement. There is a requirement for you and I to be saved. There is a law. But the law is just believe in Jesus and you're saved. Believe that his blood is sufficient. Believe he loves you believe he died for you, and believe he rose again. So requiring law makes us hypocrites, but requiring Jesus makes us Christians. Requiring laws and rule following makes us hypocrites instantly, as Paul's getting at here, but actually requiring Jesus actually makes us Bible-believing Christians who are kind of submitting ourselves to what Jesus is actually all about. So take the better way. This is actually... In a way, too, as you think about our witness to the world, some of you aren't Christians yet, and you're considering the faith or just kind of checking it out, um, or you know people that are. We all were in that place at one point, whatever our our spiritual journey stories are. But as you think about as Christians having a witness to the world, this came up last week, too, from some of Jesus' words in John 13. But this idea can actually have us have a better witness to the world, who many times thinks that Christians are hypocrites. In one sense, we always almost are. It's why we need Jesus' blood. It's like Christians shouldn't be ashamed of that. We should kind of own that and say, yeah, whatever you think I am in terms of like the sin level, it's way worse than what you think I am. It's like, you know, like your worst enemy, your biggest critic, you're way worse than that actually. <laughs> so let that actually kind of encourage you to not be so offended by them because they think you're pretty great actually compared to what you actually are. So So have that in mind as well. But with that said, when we become more about law we centralize the idea of rule following and, and commandments as Christians and make that the center. And then others watch our imperfect lives get lived out. There's dissonance there. There's, there's, it's inconsistent, and we're hypocrites. But when we become humble and confessional and don't take ourselves too seriously and say I'm sorry and say you're right and don't have to win all the time, and when we centralize Jesus, not the law, When we move towards others with him, not a bunch of commandments, what's that going to make people desire? What are they going to think of that? I mean, that might be something worth hearing about. At least we'll be labeled weird, but I'd I'd rather be weird than a hypocrite. So kind of pick your poison. When we bring Christ to people, this this is the idea. It's less likely you and I will be labeled a hypocrite. Because we're not, kind of, we're not bringing a bar or a hurdle or a standard to people. We're bringing Jesus, a person, a God who loves us, to hell and back. You see? It's going it's to bolster your witness, you guys. When we, when we move towards a, a fallen world, do not bring law. Do not bring standards. Do not bring like an ideal of moralism. Bring the man on the cross. All right, so past hypocrisy, there's also ignorance. Let's talk about that too. From verse 15, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. All right, there's a ton going on here. I'd prefer to take the scenic route with this, but no time. So we'll come at this a little bit more directly by just saying about circumcision that in the former times, it was a mark of what it meant to be a person of God for Jewish males. But now in the New Testament era, through Christ, to be marked as a person of God is not by physical circumcision anymore, or any kind of law-keeping, but by spiritual circumcision, which is faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. The The idea here is that Jesus removes the flesh or the sin from our heart, so like physically that would happen for Jewish boys when they're eight days old. A part of their like flesh, of their body, literally, would be taken off. It was a symbol of something more of the heart, more something more spiritual. Even in the Old Testament, God talks about that, how what he really wants is a heart to be circumcised. But that wasn't possible then. And so only through Christ do we see this really, truly come to fruition. Now to be marked as a person of God is not physical circumcision, it's spiritual circumcision. So there, there is a mark. And it's important to be, we have to be marked. The question is how. And in Romans uh, 2.29, actually back to Romans 2 for a second. Paul says a Jew, so a person of God, is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, this is key, by God's hands, not by the law or not by our hands. By the Spirit, not by the law. God does it, we don't. That's the idea. So we have to be circumcised, but it's spiritual, through faith in Jesus Christ. To truly be a Jew or person of God happens by God's spiritual intent to save us. How do you do that? By sending his son Jesus to die in our place, to bear our sins. And so this theme here, because of that last clause especially, ends up being yet another, we've seen a ton of these in this book, but yet another law-faith contrast in the Bible. Old Testament circumcision was done by the hands of men, by physical work. It was a law, and it didn't save. But now Christ has replaced the law, and so now we say that New Testament circumcision is done by the Spirit, by God's hands, by Christ's work for us. And it's a grace, and it does save. It actually does save. It works. But you see how who does it is in play here? In the Old Testament, people, human effort circumcised, and it failed. The New Testament, God circumcises. God takes the sin or the, so the, the flesh, so to speak, off the heart. God purifies, and it works, and it's perfect, and we're marked, and it happens by faith. Colossians 2 gets, gets at this as well. It says, in Jesus, in him. Also you church were circumcised this is key with the circumcision made without hands not by works not by the law by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ this is for Jew and Gentile for men and women it's not isolated it's not punctiliar it's not temporary it's not physical it's cosmic and eternal it doesn't, there's no partiality between gender. You know, it, it's better, it's of the heart. So, and this is why it's, it's so important. For, and for those of you that are not Christians yet, when you think about the gospel, but for those of you who are, remember this. To be marked as a person of God is to be marked by Christ. This is what this is saying, which I think is kind of what Paul's getting at here, too, when he, t- when he talks about bearing on his body the marks of Jesus. You guys see that when we read earlier? He says, Let no one cause me trouble anymore. For I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. Kind of a cryptic phrase. I'm not really going to answer it. Sorry. Uh, but I think a part of what he's saying there is to talk about being marked in connection with talking about circumcision being a mark is to say now to be marked is to be marked by Christ, not to be circumcised. To be persecuted, maybe. That's partly what he means there is I've been stoned, I've been flogged. I've been persecuted for being a Christian. I bear in my body, these are not just marks of my persecution, but the marks actually of of Christ. So now to be marked is to bear Jesus. Not to be a lawkeeper, but to bear Jesus. And so what counts now is a new creation, a new circumcised heart. To be marked is to just believe that God's hands have done this. God's hands have removed your sin. God's hands have made you new. God's hands have gone to work for you. Do you believe this? This is an invitation to believe this. God is marking people for salvation, but it's nothing that you do, nothing you earn. There's no effort, no moral effort at all. It's simply faith. It's believing that that Christ himself on the cross, this is the circumcision of Christ. This is where it happened. That believing that he did this, believing he died and rose again, believing he took our sins off of our souls, off of our hearts, so that now they're circumcised and new and soft and moldable and care about the things of God and worship and are thankful and stop the charade and simply, simply believe. And, and again, this I think, to go back to that first verse 11, this is why Paul's writing such large letters here. This is not just about circumcision being passed up by Jesus. This is about the, the difference between saying, in law form with the old circumcision, people mark people for salvation. Physical human hands are part of that process. Laws, human effort. The difference between that and saying now it's God's hands. The whole, see, the whole thing's at stake. So that in churches, in churches with, in this context, Jews and Gentiles that are wrestling with this issue of seeing this whole thing abrogate in the face of Christ, that the issue is we need things in churches that demonstrate how little it's about us. Not things that demonstrate, like circumcision would have, how much they're about us to be marked is to believe in him have his name written on our foreheads as Revelation talks about and even to be persecuted and marked and, and marked in that way for him at the hands of others so let's pr- uh, let's uh, move on to this last piece in uh, Galatians 6 uh, 618 grace be with your spirit brothers Amen. And now, if you didn't know this about Paul's letters um, in the New Testament, it, here he's ending with this wish and prayer of grace. And this is, this is not just common for Paul. This is literally every single, every single one of his letters he ends pretty much in the last verse. I think Romans might be the only one. It's like in the last chapter somewhere. But basically all of his letters he ends with this prayer of grace. He wishes grace upon people. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers, Christians. He says, "Amen," which means truly. Let it be so. Truly, I say this. And and so I, I want to encourage you guys in this. Just practically speaking, um, this this is a big deal. This might sound small; it's not. When you when you think about other Christians in your church, don't wish law upon them, but wish grace. Never wish rules upon a Christian. It's like the worst thing. That's kind of weird. I, I don't know anyone actually prays that way, but that might be someone's heart. Uh, so, but, but wish grace and do this. Pray for more of God's grace to be with, with your church. Some of you aren't part of Hiawatha, but whatever your local church is, this is please do this. This is an amazing prayer. Pray for grace for our church. More, more than you pray for physical healing, more than you pray for provisions of various kinds, more than you pray for comforts, that your headaches would cease, or whatever it is. A better prayer that should, that should fill more of your time when you pray is that God's grace would be close to us. You know, so if you've ever wondered how to pray, let the Bible inform that. Look how Paul prays. He prays very little for comfort, very little that persecution will stop, very little that his problems will go away, and said that God's grace would fill the mind and heart, that people would stay the course Theologically, that they wouldn't abandon Jesus; that they would believe and run that race, believe all their days. And so, here's just a prompting question: Do you guys ever pray that way for your church? Do you ever pray for grace to be close to the spirits of Hiawathians? This is an invitation to start doing it. Please do it. As one of your leaders, I we need this. We need these types of big spiritual prayers because we're in a war. As I, as I said before, the enemy is always against us, seeking to tempt us away from grace to other things that make us look pretty good, make us look pretty spiritual. We'll be more comfortable because you won't be mocked so much for it. It's actually, worldly speaking, kind of a better way. But it's not right. It's not the gospel. The gospel is offensive. It doesn't flatter. It will elicit persecution. we will be laughed at for our simple faith. But, it, it, but at the end, what we reap, she use last week's language, what we reap is eternal life. And so praying is simply saying, God, I can't believe the gospel without you helping me. My brothers and sisters can't stand the faith without you causing it. It's to depend before him. To not pray is to say, we can do this. We can circumcise ourselves. We can be good. We can stay the course. I can fool around with sin here for a little while and then just kind of come back to Jesus when I want later on. It's those kind of foolish ideas, playing with fire ideas. That's what it leads to. But praying says, God, we need you to make grace beautiful and for it to be the final word of our faith, like it is here. The final word of this letter is grace. Isn't that great? That's true right now in all your lives, in my life. This is true right now in this room. God's final word for you that he will never add to is grace, which means undeserved merit. It's, we're, we're unlikely candidates for salvation, all of us. We're poster children for grace. And, and God wants us to remember this so that our posture towards him will be worship and thankfulness and joy and a response of love to others freely. But it won't be seeking to fasten a ladder, to climb higher. It, it won't be seeking to add to something that God said is sufficient and good. And, and so what I want to do here to end you guys is um, I want to read a prayer. I wrote out a prayer for us that's a prayer of confession that summarizes the book, I think, pretty well on the encouragement and the warning level, but it's a prayer for all of us as, as I'll say, as Christians. Even if you're not part of this church, it's for you too. But And those of you who aren't, just to hear the gospel in this. Uh, but especially for those of you who call this home, uh, a prayer that summarizes this book. And I, And I think that the... If, if anything if we take anything away from Galatians, like on a you know, an emotional level or a subjective level, a spiritual level, it has to be humility. This book has beat the drum over and over and over again saying it's not about you. It, it, it's it, God's done everything. So in the face of that pride and boasting, as he says here, there's no place for boasting. Because God's done everything. If we think we've done 1%, there's a place to boast. If we think we've found God, there's a place to boast. If we think we're not that bad, right? All, all this stuff, we could go on. There's a place to boast. But the gospel is such that we can't boast in anything because everything's given and, and, and nothing's earned. So this prayer gets at that. And as much as it's your heart's to, kind of reflection, I invite you just to pray. You can, you can read it with me or if you want to close your eyes and just kind of listen to it. That's fine, too, but I'll invite the band up here as I'm praying I'm uh, coming up guys to uh, help us respond. so All right, so a, a prayer from, from Galatians: "Father, forgive us our sin. We are not that unlike the churches of Galatia, listening too quickly to doctrines and teachings that dilute your grace and bolster our own sense of personal holiness. We so often seek to move on from Jesus, our first love, and to mediate ourselves to you by what we do, which does nothing more than to puff us up in arrogance, to cripple us in fear, compare us with others, create divisions and isolation, and drive us further from you. But thank you for your grace. Your bloody, horrific, shameful death among criminals reminds us that you died for the worst of our sins, even sins of disbelief and self-worship and stepping on others, so that we might look better, and the sin, ultimately, of cosmic treason that we've all committed by saying with our words and actions to you, I don't need you. God, make us cross-centered people who stand firm underneath the persecution we will inevitably face, even from other so-called Christians who sneer at our simple faith and who seek to lead us away from you to a vague notion of goodness, self-help philosophy, and man-centered religion. Stir within us so that Jesus' death and resurrection might be beautiful to us, meaningful, and something we seek to receive rather than just know about, and something we seek to demonstrate to others in our church through acts of love and service. Holy Spirit, wake us up from our sinful slumber and make us new. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. Let's stand as we respond with this one last song.